This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, filling in for your usual host, Mr. Joel Hilliker. And with me is our panel. Here in the studio in Edmond, Oklahoma, is Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Ontario is Abraham Blondeau. Good day. From our office in the UK is Mr. Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And from our office in Jerusalem, Israel, Brent Noctigal. Shalom. Well, it was four months ago today that Russia shocked the world by waging its full-scale, brutal war against Ukraine. This is a potentially history-altering war with implications that go far beyond Eastern Europe. To bring us up to speed on the latest here, we'll go to Abraham Blundo. Yeah, this week we passed uh, 120 days of the war in Ukraine, and uh, basically we're facing the worst-case scenario. Uh, unfolding for the West in many ways. The, the main change has been uh, Russia. They're starting to make gains in the Donbass region. And there could be the threat this coming week of them encircling uh, Ukrainian forces around the, the city of Severodonetsk. So the, the Russians said they want to capture the city by June 26th. And this is a, a key city to capturing the whole region, big industrial city as well. But the major change to the war is the, the Russians have started using their artillery um, and they've employed a tactic where they they fire long range artillery to pin down the Ukrainians and then they send in armor and infantry afterwards to capture the position. So this has forced the Ukrainians to retreat, pull back instead of being encircled and it, it's proven effective for the Russians. The main limitations for Russia has, has been uh, their manpower shortages because they have taken some significant casualties in Ukraine. Uh, but this is the, the Russian artillery is, is having an effect on the field and it is starting to um, cause Russia to have some pretty significant gains in the Donbass region. Uh, and this is bad news for Ukraine in the West because um, the Western nations were suffering from Ukraine fatigue, I think. A few months ago, you could walk down the street and see Ukrainian flags everywhere in Canada or any other Western nation was on the news all the time, but now it's fading into the background as people are being, um, are, are they're starting to mind their own problems in their own countries, like inflation and, and other problems. So I think as, as Russia gets more success, the Ukrainian government is having a harder time getting what they need to help the fight back, especially against the Russian artillery. So I think it's with the war there, it, it is starting to, it could be a turning point. It's too early to say for sure, but it is something that, uh, that could turn pretty quickly against Ukraine uh, in the next few weeks. So a big part of this war is happening in the economic realm. Uh, the United States and other Western powers, they've been aiming to weaken Russia with all kinds of economic sanctions and isolation. Uh, what can you tell us about how that aspect of, of it is going for Russia? Yeah, I think the cornerstone of the whole rest of response was the economic sanctions. Um, but as you mentioned, it's this is actually backfiring pretty spectacularly against America and the West. Just this month, uh, Russia is expecting an extra $9.6 billion in income 
Uh, they're getting roughly around $800 million a day uh, through exports, uh, mainly oil and natural gas. And uh, the other thing is that the ruble has actually hit a, a seven-year high. Uh, um, since May of 2015, it's never been this high against the U.S. dollar. It's actually gained 39% in value since the start of the year. So all these sanctions that were meant to cripple the, the Russian economy, they have they have had some impacts on the Russian economy. Inflation there is 17%, which is massive. And uh, Russia, the Russian economy is going to shrink. So they are going to face their own recession there. But it's not stopping Russia's war machine. And as long as Putin keeps getting these massive cash reserves from um, oil sales and, and all the other resources Russia can trade, He'll be able to stimulate the economy, and he'll also be able to keep buying the the weapons and and everything he needs to keep the war going. These sanctions, like the trumpet has covered before, it's actually hurting the West more than Russia. Russia's built for an economic siege. They've been under sanctions basically constantly for thirty years. Uh, so they can them and the Russian people they can handle it, but the West can't. And the main reason why Putin and, and Russia are, are able to navigate around the sanctions is mainly because of China and India. Putin even said this week in a a BRICS business meeting, he said that trade with the BRICS nations, especially China and India, they're up uh, 38%. Half of Russian oil goes to China now. And two thirds used to go to Europe, but more of it's flowing to, to China. So as long as those relationships stay in place, which Bible prophecy says they will, it's it's looking better and better for Russia the longer the war goes on and the longer that the sanctions are held in place by the West. You you mentioned Bible prophecy there just briefly. Would you would you mind placing all this in that broader context for the listeners? Sure. Yeah. So the the war will will change week to week, but we know the broad overview, and that is that uh, Bible prophecies in Ezekiel and Isaiah they both show that. There will be an Eastern power block led by Russia, uh, comprising of Russia, China, India, and some other nations. Uh, But they'll be the main, what the Bible we call in uh, our literature, the kings of the East, led by Vladimir Putin, who is the prophesied prince of Russia. And these nations, they'll, they'll keep growing in power, and they'll eventually be one of the major juggernauts in the world uh, beside uh, a rejuvenized Europe and a smaller power block in the Middle East led by Iran. But we know this is going to happen, and it's pretty astounding to see it actually happening right in front of us. I think in a way we didn't necessarily expect where it's Western levers of pulling all these sanctions and doing all these things to try to hurt Russia. Excuse me, it's actually enabling Asia to unite, grow stronger economically, and and then also just be ready to uh, strike at America and Britain, that's the, the real aim of, of this, is to take down the superpower as they expand their, their empire. Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has written a booklet that explains all of the various prophetic trends that Abraham just uh, just discussed there. It's called The Prophesied Prince of Russia, and we will leave a link to that in our show notes for today's episode, so please navigate there if you'd like to pick up your free copy of The Prophesied Prince of Russia. Well, thanks very much for that, Abraham. For this next story, we'll stay on the topic of Ukraine 
and look at an invitation that the Ukrainian people were thrilled to receive this week from the European Union. For this, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, I, I find myself in a unique position, I think, this week. Often I'm here saying, hey, this new story that seems pretty small and unimportant is actually huge. Here's why. This might be the first time I've been doing the opposite. Hey, here's this new story that might seem huge and really significant, but it's not. Here's why. So that new story is that Ukraine is now officially, formally a, a candidate for the European Union. So, uh, you know, it's not just uh, that, that that's a... a you know, that is an official formal category. The European Union has issued a formal invitation. It's separate to just kind of having a vague aspiration to join the European Union. It's got a lot of people in Ukraine very excited that they may one day now join the European Union. This is what they've wanted for years, to be on the path to join the European Union. Uh, it's gotten a lot of people talking about well, the potential geopolitical changes and is Europe standing up to actually standing up to Russia. The reality is, though, it doesn't really mean much. Turkey is also officially in this exact same category. And Turkey has been in this category for quite some time. And it's pretty obvious that Turkey is not going to move out of this category. They are not going to become uh, an EU member. So it's, it's just like everything that we've been seeing from Europe and especially from Germany over Ukraine, something that kind of looks like it's a nice big gesture on the surface and the reality is uh, much less impressive. Even the Kremlin has been pointing this out. Uh, they, met, they pointed out that you know, the, the accession process tends to take at least 10 years, if not longer. And uh, they basically threatened, well, Ukraine might not even be a country in two years. So uh, you've, got this, uh, you've got this situation. But I think it is useful in terms of what it exposes. And it is worth talking about in terms of what it exposes about Europe and uh, about the attitude towards Ukraine, but also just in general. Uh, you know, one of the biggest and most interesting responses to this push to candidacy has been Germany. Because if the Ukraine did, or if Ukraine did become a member state of the European Union, it would be, in terms of population and size, one of the biggest. It would be huge for Europe. And it would also require a huge amount of cash because, in theory, the European Union spreads money around so that the poorer nations are kind of brought up to the same level as the richer nations. And that would be a, there would be a lot of catching up uh, for Ukraine to do. So everybody would see this as changing their status quo. But Germany is the one that's looked at this the most, uh, that Ukraine, with their large population, would dilute Germany's large population. At the moment, because Germany is the most populous nation in Europe, they have the biggest vote in Europe. So they immediately said, well, we're only going to even let Ukraine get on this waiting list of something that will never happen if we get guarantees that our power isn't going to be diluted. So it's, I think that kind of whole process and discussion has been very revealing about uh, just the process of the way the European Union is won, is run. Uh, and Germany has this institutionalized position where they have a bigger say than everyone else, and they're not going to do anything to jeopardize that. So, yeah, on the surface, this looks like really exciting news for the Ukrainians. But as you said, this invitation may not really mean very much. What exactly would the Ukrainians have to change to make their uh, candidacy viable? Or, or what other factors in Europe would have to change for them to become a member? 
yeah there's there's the paper and there's the reality the on paper there are a whole load of different uh chapters that have to be fulfilled and and in theory the process goes through chapter by chapter and each chapter is kind of closed off when um these things are complete so there's a chapter on the rule of law for example and this chapter includes various different eu rules about how your court system works how your judges work they have certain ways that they want judges to be appointed they want them to be non-political for example and they want some kind of process where politicians don't have much uh say over how these judgments work and who is appointed uh there's chapters on um you know, not non-corruption, there's economic chapters, all of this, but there's also just a realpolitik dimension that at the end of the day, you've got to get all the nations that are in the European Union to agree. And it's, uh, it's this is where things have tend to get held up in the past, where you'll have, say, Bulgaria uh, will have their own agenda that's going on with this country outside the European Union, and their candidacy is not moving forward until that one country's um beef is sorted out so you've also got this and in, and in that case you can expect a lot of countries to behave exactly like germany you know poland a lot of East, a lot of the poorer countries in europe if ukraine joins they're going to be getting dramatically less money so they've got an incentive to find ways to block ukraine's candidacy it appears pretty churlish to say well we don't want to share our money with you uh so we don't want you to join so they're not going to say that they will couch it in terms of, say, rule of law concerns or some of these other ones. But at the end of the day, that's going to be a big part of it as well. And it's those kind of political obstacles. And it's the same with Turkey. You know, everyone knows Turkey is not a European Union country because they're a Muslim country. And the European Union has Christian foundations, a Christian club. And apart, but apart from a few kind of more indiscreet moments, nobody says that. That's not the official reason that they're not right. uh, a European Union member. And then, of course, the big thing that so much of this gets back to is Germany's relationship with Russia. We, we have a, a great article from Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flower in the latest Trumpet print, Germany's secret deal with Russia exposed on how this whole Ukraine crisis exposes the fact that Germany has done a deal with Russia. They're siding with Russia. They're backing Russia. Uh, and they, they, they've been absolutely fine with Russia coming in there, taking off these chunks of Ukraine. And, and Mr. Flurry in that article goes through a lot of pretty strong evidence that behind the scenes, Germany has done a deal with Russia. Now, they don't want to look like they've done a deal with Russia, which is why Germany promises heavy weapons for Ukraine, only for them to never actually arrive. Uh, and again, it's the same with this EU candidacy. OK, yes, we'll put you on the official list. We will now spend the next two or three decades coming up with reasons for why you won't join. Uh, but you're on the list and they kind of get to look like the good guys so it's exactly the same thing and it's that relationship that is probably why ukraine is not ever going to become a candidate of the, of the european union that uh it appears that germany has done some kind of a deal where russia gets control over at least part of ukraine and maybe there could be some situation where a ukrainian rump might be able to join the european union that would depend on exactly uh the terms of that deal but this is, you know, we're talking about, okay, well, this, this story is not important. This is where it gets important, uh, that you do have, that the fact that it exposes this relationship between Germany and Russia, it, that is very significant. That is the, the fact that you've got basically half of the West, half of the developed world, the developed world that is not Britain and America, uh, is 
siding with Russia on such a critical issue and is working with an out and out adversary of the United States. That should be a big wake up call and that you've got Germany and Europe working to bring down the United States. It exposes uh, the fact that Europe is not the friend that America thinks that they are. And Bible prophecy tells us that as well. Uh, Bible prophecy reveals that relationship. It reveals this empire that is hiding and working to come back. And that's what we see exposed in what is going on in Ukraine. And that's also what Mr. Flurry gets into in more detail and shows you exactly uh, how the Bible prophesies this, how this pl- ties in with with God's plan for end time events. And that article is Germany's secret deal with Russia exposed. Yes, that article will, uh, I think, help listeners to really understand why, as exciting as this news might sound, we really shouldn't expect Ukraine to join the European Union. And that's because of you know, Germany's collusion with Russia. Well, thanks very much for that, Mr. Palmer. For the next story, we'll take a look at the latest upset in Israeli politics. For this, we'll go to Brent Noctegal. Yes, it looks like the Israeli government, uh, led by Naftali Bennett, is finally coming down. On Wednesday, the, uh, there was a preliminary bill that passed in the Knesset to dissolve the government. So this means that this was led by the coalition. They recognized they didn't have enough support any longer to pass any, any laws, uh, not having a majority. And so now they are trying to, trying to call up elections, fresh elections that will likely take place in November. There is... One catch, though, there is a member of the coalition that has already defected across to the Netanyahu side, <clears throat> and is and he's in charge of a special committee that needs to sit uh, to discuss the final dissolving of the Knesset, so they need to meet, but he's trying to delay that meeting to allow some time for Netanyahu to try and cobble together a full-blown no-confidence vote in this in the coalition itself. And by this technicality, if he can do that, and if he can get a confidence vote of over 60 uh, Knesset members, then he himself would take over as the prime minister without an election. So there is a chance that that could happen. However, that's a long shot. Uh, so Israel, I think it looks like is going to go to elections probably 1st of November. So 1st of November, we can expect these uh, general elections to take place. What's your view on Benjamin Netanyahu's chances of regaining power. I I understand that the Biden administration here in the U.S. is dead set against him returning. Yeah, this is a really interesting time right now, because by virtue of the coalition deal that was brokered between Naftali Bennett and uh, Yair Lapid, uh, a leftist politician that claims to be on the center, um, Lapid is about to be, if elections are called, Lapid will then be the prime minister uh, all the way through the election cycle. And yet Netanyahu is by far the most popular politician in Israel. However, the question could would be if an election was held tomorrow or on November 1st, would he have enough of a coalition to get the 61 seats? There was a poll that came out yesterday that said he would fall short just, um, even though he's by far the most popular. Um, so that would mean that uh, we would come into this election cycle like we saw, series of election cycles like we saw uh, before this government was sworn in, where you had three separate elections, which were inconclusive, and the caretaker prime minister continues. This is where Netanyahu was prime minister for two years, but he didn't really have a mandate to rule, um, but somebody's got to be prime minister. And so we could, uh, Lapid knows that he cannot form a coalition of 61 um 
in the next election. He knows that. So he's going to work tooth and nail to make sure that Netanyahu can't as well, which would see him stay in power. And this is, you know, this is either one way it's going to go. Lapid will stay in power or Netanyahu will be back. That's it. They're the two choices come elections. Now, to throw another wrinkle into the mix is you have the visit by President Biden that's due to take place in July. Uh, most of the time when a nation's in an election cycle, there aren't important foreign visits to certain individuals that don't have a mandate to rule. Again, Lapid didn't have him, doesn't have a mandate to be prime minister. He's a caretaker prime minister. Yet Biden's full steam ahead with his visit because he wants to do all he can to show that he is buddy-buddy with Yair Lapid. He wants him to stay in power. He's Yair Lapid is kind of like the ideological counterpart to the Democratic Party in the United States. Um, it's been that way for the past decade. Back in 2014, actually, Lapid was part of the coalition of Netanyahu when he was in power, and Obama wanted Netanyahu gone. And Lapid had back-channel conversations with Obama's people, Obama's State Department, behind Netanyahu's back. And to stop that, Netanyahu dissolved his own government. And then 2015 came around, and the Obama administration's State Department actively funded a get-out-the-vote campaign against Netanyahu to try and remove him from power. Um, so they're dead set against Netanyahu coming back. They're going to do all they can to tip the scales towards, uh, towards Yair Lapid. However, this could backfire. This could backfire because Biden isn't that popular. Uh, there was a Pew poll that came out just yesterday in Israel. There was a Pew poll that came out yesterday that showed that in Israel, Israel is the only Western country that still holds a, a, a more favorable position of Donald Trump than it does uh, by Biden, by about 10%. So it's still pretty big towards Trump. And, and so will Biden coming to, the, to coming to Israel and being so glowing towards Lapid actually help him in an election? Maybe not. So there's all these, there's all these facets involved. It's very clear to all Israelis where the Biden administration stands. They don't want Netanyahu back. They want Lapid in. However, the Israeli public doesn't like people interfering with their politics. And so this actually might backfire and, and, and bring Netanyahu to, to actually get the 61 seats um, that he needs in the next election. Yeah, really interesting to see how the, uh, you know, that Biden administration visit could uh, actually backfire on the plan. So there's a lot for us to keep our eyes on there. Could you please explain to the listeners the significance of these developments in light of Bible prophecy? Yeah, certainly. The the prophecy I think people should be most concerned about here or interested in relating to both Israel and the United States is one that joins those two nations together, and that's found in Second Second uh, Kings chapter 14, the last verses of that chapter. Mr. Gerald Flurry's talked about this at length over the past two or three years to show that there is a, an end-time ruler, Jeroboam, is he, Jeroboam II is he, was his name uh, anciently, and he's shown how Donald Trump does fulfill a type of that in this end time uh, to show that Donald Trump will recover his presidency in some facet and some will come back to the presidency. And if you look at, I think it's verse 27 or verse 28 there of that chapter, it talks about how that he also recovers something for Judah as well, biblical Judah. And biblical Judah today, the modern descendants, is the state of Israel, the Jews. And so these... The, it seems to imply in this prophecy here that the future of both the United States and Israel are linked, and they're linked. And we saw a really interesting 
you know, type of this with the relationship between Donald Trump and Netanyahu in the past, uh, when when they were both in power, very close relationship. Never has Israel seen a more favorable prime uh, president of Israel than Donald Trump. And so, if President Trump is going to recover his presidency, it, Mr. Flurry's said it makes sense also that Netanyahu could likely get back in power as well. Uh, the the prophecy that underpins this is is found in detail in Mr. Flurry's book, Great Again. Well, thanks very much for bringing us up to speed on that, Brent. We'll take a look now at the United States, where the country's military academy has introduced some radical teachings into its curricula. For this, we'll turn it over to Andrew Miller. Yeah, the United States military is very focused on creating safe spaces these days, but not safe spaces in uh, Odessa, Ukraine, but safe spaces against microaggressions. You uh, had some really shocking uh, documents, over 600 pages of documents from uh, the Department of Defense, which were uh, obtained uh, or turned over by the Department of Defense to the Judicial Watch uh, group, Judicial Watch. Uh, And these, uh, and it's mainly just slide after slide after slide of classes and curriculum for West Point cadets, for people who are looking to become officers in the U.S. military. And uh, the type of uh, the, the the type of information, though, it just overtly uh, critical race theory, and then also some uh, some queer theory as well. Looking at basically just a very Marxist interpretation of both race and sexuality. Um, we've got a, a couple uh, a couple examples from these slides here, where they're. The one section says that the documents obtained by Judicial Watch reveal that West Point cadets are being taught that in order to understand racial inequality and slavery, it's first necessary to address whiteness and that whiteness is a standpoint or place from which white people look at themselves and the rest of society. Uh, Then they go on to, to talk about how there's a need to prepare officers to thoughtfully answer questions from soldiers about topics in the news such as critical race theory. Uh, and so basically taking through, if you look anything into critical race theory, it was, uh, I think the term was coined in the late 80s uh, at a workshop that it's basically, uh, I think the best way to summarize is under traditional Marxism, you're trying to stir up resentment amongst the poor against the rich, uh, overthrow overthrow the rich, establish um, a Marxist system and a, and a proletariat revolution. Uh, in Western nations, that doesn't work as well for the Marxist activists as it does in Eastern nations because we don't have like a serf class or a peasant class. We have a pretty robust middle class. So critical race theory basically seeks to substitute race conflict for class conflict uh, and overthrow capitalism and implement socialist theory that way. That's what the theory was designed to do in the 80s. It's worked its way into the U.S. education system and is now working its way into the U.S. military, where when they're having all these training classes with officers talking about terms like you need to address your own whiteness and you need to address your own uh, privilege, it's basically using uh, your race as a proxy for your for your economic class. Um in an attempt to implement a socialist system. And so very concerning that this is the type of thing that's coming through uh, in our military. I Right. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say this, this kind of radicalism, that's the sort of thing we would expect to be taught at Berkeley or the University of Vermont, something like that. But to hear about this becoming part of the curricula for West Point, 
where American military officers are being educated. That's just alarming. I wonder what, what do you think the implications of this are for U.S. security? Uh, well, I wrote an article last year highlighting another case about a, 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 a lieutenant colonel in Space Force, Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Loamer, who, uh, who was actually relieved of his command for publishing a book titled Irresistible Revolution, Marxism's Goal of Conquest and the Unmaking of the American Military. And for a little bit, that book was actually the bestseller on, uh, on Amazon.com. Mm. So... Uh, for a week or so when it first came out last year. So the book makes a really strong case about that these things that we're hearing from Judicial Watch this week. Uh, it's not a one-off case, I mean, but this has been going on for at least a year, uh, probably since uh, Obama first took office, uh, really trying to just indoctrinate military leadership and socialist values. And... Um, and, and Colonel Lomer even made the case that he's like, he said, he said, what the officers are being taught today are the same values that like their fathers and grandfathers and in, in many cases sacrificed their lives uh, to defend America against in the Cold War. And it's a huge strategic vulnerability to America because not all, one, not only is it just talking about like queer theory and transgenders and um, weaken the u.s military uh it also divides the u.s military because i mean this is not something this <laughs> this this brainwashing or this propaganda at west point is not something that's just going to convert the military into the soviet red army overnight uh it's going to take some time and there's going to be quite a few people who are going to push back against it and so you have a real risk of actually having like military the military divided against itself um which is, the, I think, the biggest threat to national security. In the, in the article I wrote uh, on this topic, I actually began it with a, a quote from Abraham Lincoln back all the way in 1838, uh, where he's, uh, he's talking to like a men's club in Springfield, Illinois, where he said, so we expect some transatlantic military giant to step over the ocean and crush America in a blow. He's like, I say never. All the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa combined with all the treasures of the earth in their military chest and a Bonaparte for a commander could not by force take a drink from the Ohio River or make a track on the Blue Ridge Mountains in a trial of a thousand years. At what point then is are we to expect danger? I answer, if it ever reach us, it must spring up among us. It cannot come from abroad. If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we live through all time or die by suicide. Mm -hmm. uh, basically making the point much more eloquently than I can that the only threat, really the only, the, the biggest threat to the U.S. military is the U.S. military. It outspends the next 10 militaries combined. Uh, there's not a, a huge threat that some other military is going to just conquer the United States um, as it stands now. But you start seeing this Marxist infiltration of the military pitting soldiers against each other, pitting generals against each other, pitting battalions against each other. Uh, you could see the U.S. itself implode uh, in a civil war that would leave the country vulnerable to uh, some transatlantic military giant to step across the ocean and crush us at a blow. And, uh, and that's definitely what we expect from uh, prophecy. Uh, we in the, uh, you can read uh, our editor-in-chief, Mr. Joseph's booklet, uh, Ezekiel, 
the end time prophet, where there's a pretty hefty chapter in there about Ezekiel 5, talking about um, how America is the descendants of end time Israel, and uh, and because of their abominations or their sins that they've turned away from God, it's actually prophesied that about a third of the population will die in uh, the famine and the disease and the violence that results from civil war conditions. Uh, and then another third from a military invasion. But you really do need that first Civil War third um, to to like bring the American military down from the heights it's at right now to make it vulnerable to that uh, to that transatlantic military colossus. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was saying wasn't going to be much of a threat unless we uh, unless we uh, destroyed ourselves first. Yeah, that Lincoln quote just very eloquently, as you said, states how, you know, the internal division has to really come first before we can even be vulnerable to outside invasion. Uh, what's the name of your article where you quoted that? Oh, I don't think it's online yet, but we I have one called Awoke Military Endangers Us All that will be out probably sometime early next week. Okay, very good. And we will also include a link to Mr. Fleury's book, Ezekiel the End Time Prophet, uh, in our show notes for today's episode. We'll take a short break now, and when we come back, we'll talk about Germany's coal plants, a devastating earthquake in Afghanistan, Turkey-Saudi Arabia reconciliation, and America's deteriorating influence in Latin America. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. In the age of increasing panic about environmental degradation, coal has come to be looked on as deeply problematic as an energy source. But now Germany, a nation that has really tried to portray itself as kind of the vanguard of the Green Revolution, suddenly Germany is announcing that it is about to fire its old coal power plants back up. To tell us about what's behind this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, Germany is finding itself in a bit of a uh, an economic catastrophe. Uh, they're a nation whose economy relies on producing stuff. And in today's world, that means energy. Uh, producer prices for industrial products have uh, up 33% year on year. So uh, that's a that's a massive jump beyond even what inflation is soaring energy prices are largely behind this they've almost doubled year on year and a lot of this is coming from natural gas which is up almost 150 percent so it's something that is causing real economic hardship and germany is responding by turning on its coal power plants and it's it's kind of ironic it's a green uh, a member of the green party was the one who got up and announced this this party that is all about environmental issues yeah, i think a, a whole lot of this is is a bit of a sham if germany really cared about its environment they've got i think three nuclear power plants they're scheduled to close by the end of this year there's several i think about two or so that they have already closed this year that they could reopen very easily a lot of the people running these power plants the scientists the regulatory bodies are all saying we could keep these power plants on for another 10 years or so uh, and they won't do that a big part of the reason they say they're doing this is 
to diversify away from Russia and to move and rely on not to be as reliant on Russian gas. What no one seems to be talking about is that Russia is by far Germany's largest source of coal. So this doesn't get them any more independent uh, from Russia either. And again, that's another problem that nuclear power would solve. So uh, yeah, there's kind of some appearances of trying to distance themselves from Russia, like we talked about in the first half. The reality is not there. If they really wanted to distance themselves from Russia, there are easy steps they could take that they are not doing. Uh, they're trying to portray themselves as being good environmentalists. Again, if they really were, there are there are easy steps that they're that they're not taking. But I think one of the points that uh, the Trumpeter executive editor Stephen Flurry made earlier on the the Trumpet Daily this week is that Herbert W. Armstrong talks a lot about how an economic crash would help push Europe together, and that pressure from Russia would play a major role in that. And that's exactly what we're seeing now, heavy pressure being pull, pushed on Germany from uh, from Russia. I was reading one article this morning saying this could potentially be a kind of Lehman's Brothers moment for Germany. The comparison with the 2008 banking crisis being that crisis was triggered when people all of a sudden realized that one thought of sort of asset that everybody thought was completely safe and reliable was not. And now we're seeing the same thing where Russian gas was viewed as completely safe and reliable. Now it's being viewed as as not. And potentially you could see bankruptcies across German power industries, knock on effects that this would have to the rest of the economy. So uh, it shines a light on the very real economic pressure that Europe is feeling. Trumpet editor in chief Gerald Flurry has talked about this too. Uh, he had he wrote America's banking crisis will reshape Europe financially and politically. And uh, you know that's what we're that's what we have the potential for seeing, and and I think the energy crisis that Germany's moving into this week puts that on display. What literature could the listeners uh, read if they would like to better grasp that economic collapse that we're expect we're expecting? Well, I think one good place to start would be that article from Mr. Flurry in 2015, how the global financial crisis will produce Europe's ten kings. So that's how the global financial crisis will produce Europe's 10 kings. And then on this energy crisis in particular, we have an article up on our website already, a self-inflicted energy crisis worse than COVID-19. We will be sure to leave links to both of those in the show notes for today's episode, uh, or you can also navigate over to thetrumpet.com to check those articles out. Thanks very much for that, Mr. Palmer. We will take a look now at Afghanistan, where a devastating earthquake hit this week. To tell us about this, we'll go once again to Abraham. Yeah, in Afghanistan, uh, there was a 6.1 magnitude earthquake. According to Europe, it, Americans measured at 5.9. By either way, it was a, a pretty large earthquake, um, and the death toll has risen to over 1,200 people uh, dead. Uh, over 1,500 wounded, and they're esti estimating about 3,000 homes were destroyed. Uh, the earthquake hit in a eastern region, more rural region, but their uh, eyewitnesses are saying that entire regions were destroyed, not just a house here or a house there, but entire little uh, villages and communities were just leveled by the earthquake. And, of course, in, in rural Afghanistan, the infrastructure there isn't anything like we have uh, or what we're used to. So these sort of disasters do tend to have a more devastating impact. But this is just adds a lot more misery onto what the 
the people of Afghanistan are already experiencing under the rule of the Taliban. Anyway, this morning when I was thinking about this, it's hard to uh, come to grips with, but the America's withdrawal from Afghanistan was 10 months ago this month. It's almost a year, and a lot's happened in that year. It seems in some ways longer ago than that, and, and just like yesterday and some other ways. But all, all the suffering is really intensifying it in on those people, and and you have this crisis giving the opportunity for a few governments to take advantage of it, including the Taliban, because they're now asking for international aid. They're using it as a photo op to show how uh, how much they care about their people, uh, helping them out with the rubble, etc. And so this could be a, a way that the Taliban try to get more uh, money internationally, get more uh, support, and, and just become more legitimate in the eyes of the, the West. Yeah, it is just heartbreaking to see this devastation that's happened to the Afghan people. And then on top of everything else, as you said, the aftermath of the earthquake is really legitimizing the Taliban's rule over them. So it looks like just no end to their suffering. Uh, What can you tell us about this in terms of its prophetic relevance? Yeah, so I think there's a few trends uh, to keep lookout for. One of them is is, uh, we're seeing that China really takes advantage of opportunities like this to to come in and invest in the country and really uh, make it subservient to them. We can see that a similar trend happening in Sri Lanka. Well, as Sri Lanka collapses, China's looking to, to move in and, and just uh, capture that uh, seagate there. Um, and Afghanistan is a vital uh, land, uh, land bridge between Asia and the Middle East. You have the Khyber Pass there, which is a historic way between those two uh the two regions and so that that could be very important for china's belt and road initiative um so you can you can expect to see china move in and give the taliban money to rebuild afghanistan but also you can keep your eye on germany too germany seems to be the only western country that still is talking about afghanistan even that there's been some news the last couple of weeks where they're still warning about afghanistan and just talking about it uh strategically and that's something that even um, editor-in-chief, Mr. Joe Flurry, has talked about in, in the booklet, Germany's Secret Strategy Against Iran, uh, where Afghanistan could play a, a role in that strategy. Um, so those are two trends to keep uh, your eye on. But just to remember, too, that all of this is possible because of what the United States did 10 months ago. And that's just something to keep in mind that there won't be good fruits from the humiliating surrender in Afghanistan. And that you can find a, a just to refresh yourself on what happened there. Uh, just last year, uh, Mr. Flurry had an article called "This Isn't Incompetence, This Is Treason," and it just helps to give an overview of how really America's um, their disastrous foreign policy has really uh, opened the door for these other nations to move into Afghanistan. The names of those articles once again are Germany's secret strategy against Iran, and then also. This isn't incompetence. This is treason. We will link to both of those. Thanks very much for that, Abraham. We'll take a look now at a visit that the Saudi crown prince made this week that could mark a major turning point. To learn about this, we'll go once again to Brent. Yes, this past week, we had the first meeting between Mohammed bin Salman, the uh, de facto leader of Saudi Arabia, uh, and his visit to taking place with Turkey and meeting with Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the strongman ruler out of Turkey. Now, everyone will remember the relationship between the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Turkey has been on ice for the past couple of years because of the the murder 
uh, inside the Saudi embassy or Saudi consulate, I believe it was, um, of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the uh, Washington Post reporter that was um, lured there and then um, cut up and basically uh, assassinated because of his uh, negative stance toward the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And there was a massive campaign over the past couple of years to really um, try and pin the blame on Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince himself, that he deliberately ordered the killing. Um, however, nobody has been able to do that, um, not for lack of trying. The United States has been trying to use this as one of the main motivations to not have a relationship with Saudi Arabia for the past two years, but even that's changing right now. Um, but this, obviously, no country wants a foreign country to murder people um, on it in its territory. And so this really did set off a, a, a thaw, a really cold relationship between between the two. But now that is ending, it seems, because um, Turkey is kind of coming in out of the cold over the past, say, six months or so with a number of, of Arab states. Um, there was, so there's been some deals, uh, business deals signed between the UAE and Turkey over the past six months. And now even Saudi Arabia has been willing, has been invited by Erdogan uh, to come back to to visit the country, and this was on the under this express um, condition that not one single mention would be made of uh, Khashoggi in the Turkish press, or by questions from the from the press, or by the government itself. And so, there was a warm embrace between the two. Right now, we've got this really uh, bad situation for Erdogan. He's he's unpopular um, in his own country, mainly because of just the the absolute disaster of the Turkish economy right now. The lira, Turkish lira lost 45% of value over the past year. And so he's really needing to get some support, some investment. And the best way to find investment is from Saudi Arabia uh, in the Middle East right now, given that the, the oil price is so high and Saudi Arabia being the leading exporter of oil, um, it's done very well for itself. And so I think what we're seeing here is just some real politic between Erdogan and MBS um, necessitating uh, a relationship with Saudi Arabia to perhaps try and get Erdogan um, to uh, become more popular amongst his own people if, if, if Saudi Arabia can kind of save part of his economy. So Mohammed bin Salman had been, you know, ostracized for years, as you said, over this grisly murder. Uh, but now the Turkish leadership has embraced him. And then I understand that President Biden is uh, planning to visit MBS very soon as well, which you alluded to there. Uh, what's motivating Biden's outreach? Well, I mean, it is probably the biggest flip-flop in foreign policy uh, that we've seen of late within the space of, of less than two years. Um, Biden came in and his first actions against any state to kind of reverse what Trump did was with Saudi Arabia, calling it a pariah, um, removing support for the war in, for, in the war in Yemen, halting arms deals with Saudi Arabia. This is one of the great allies of the United States uh, in the region and, and basically has said that he was not going to follow Donald Trump. And now it seems like we have this situation where uh, he doesn't have, he doesn't really have a choice because oil prices are so high and he doesn't want to pump inside his own country. And so you've got to increase some output somewhere else 
to try and bring down the price to make it more favorable, suppose, in mid, for the midterm election. So that's the simple answer. I don't have a better answer than that right now, um, that this is why Biden is still going there. And again, even though they, the U.S. has tried to pin the blame for the murder of, of this Washington Post uh, reporter um, on him, that's kind of been brushed off now. And this meeting's meant to go ahead in July. Yeah, I guess we'll just have to see what uh, what comes from that. So to get back to Turkey and Saudi Arabia, at the Trumpet, we've been expecting a reconciliation between these two specific nations. Yeah, we have. This is based on a prophecy in Psalm 83 that discusses an end-time alliance between these two um between these two nations and other more moderate Arab states, including the UAE, uh, including Jordan. And Turkey was the third stop, actually, on the trip of, of MBS. He went to Jordan and Egypt uh, before this. And so, as you say, we have expected a reconciliation between these two nations. And that that's explained in, thoroughly uh, in our trend article, an alliance between Arab nations and Europe is what it's called. And people can see the biblical underpinnings for this for this alliance that has to come uh, and has to be set up uh, before the Great Tribulation. And so when we see this coming closer, we know that this alliance is this coming together of these people is is, is happening, which is a direct precursor to, to the to the tribulation and the second coming of Christ. An alliance between Arab nations and Europe is the name of that article. We will leave a link to that in our show notes for today's program, so you can check that out there if you'd like to. Thanks very much for that, Brent. For our final story of the show today, we'll look at Latin Americans uniting against the United States. For this, we'll go back to Andrew. Yeah, for the first time in 28 years, the United States hosted the Summit of the Americas, which is uh, an annual conference that's supposed to uh, uh, allow the, the heads of state of all the different nations in the Western Hemisphere to uh, uh, collaborate on joint projects and just try to promote some hemispheric unity. Uh, since it was in the United States uh, this year, it was hosted last week. Joe Biden really wanted to uh, to use this to highlight to the world how much relations with Latin America have improved under his administration compared to Donald Trump and really fell flat on his face in that regard. Uh, somewhat last minute, they decided not to invite Cuba, Venezuela, or Nicaragua from good reasons for good reasons all three of those nations are run by socialist dictators with an abysmal human rights record so they they didn't invite them to come to the United States uh, though Biden soon found out that many nations across Latin America are far more loyal to Cuba Nicaragua and Venezuela than they are to the United States the uh, the president of Mexico uh, Jose Manuel Lopez Obrador, uh, pretty last minute actually, uh, came in and said he was canceled. He was not coming. He was still still sending a representative, but he wouldn't come himself. Uh, and he didn't make up an excuse like I'm busy or have to mow my lawn or something that day. But it's like uh, he's like I'm not coming because you didn't invite Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Uh, and many other Latin American nations did the same. The president of Bolivia, the president of El Salvador, the president of Honduras, the president of Guatemala, they all boycotted this summit because 
that Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela weren't invited. Yeah, that's quite a list of uh, countries that really shows that this summit um, of the Americas was quite a failure for the U.S. And then at the same time as America was kind of failing to win these nations over, I understand that European leaders were building quite a bit of rapport with some of these countries. Yeah, the European Union is uh, still collaborating several projects with Cuba. So relationships with the European Union and Cuba are getting much, much stronger. Uh, and at the same time that was happening, the prime minister of Spain was really trying to push his uh, some of his other European Union colleagues uh, to do whatever they needed to to be able to get some more free to trade free trade agreements in the area with Mexico with Chile uh, and most importantly with the Mercosur alliance so really going quite strong we do have an article up online titled Latins Unite Against the United States that quotes from our editor in chief's booklet Isaiah's um, End Time Vision which uh, states that Herbert Ar W. Armstrong long prophesied and we expect the alliance between Europe and South America to grow extremely strong the most significant factors that will cement this connection are religion and language. Roman Catholicism is the dominant religion of Latin America, and Spanish is the, more, is the fourth most spoken language in the world. Uh, and so this, uh, this union between Latin America and Europe under the, the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, that is that prophesied transatlantic colossus that Lincoln was uh, referencing in the first half of the first half of the show, and so definitely something that uh, uh, America needs to be very concerned about because as we're uh, as we're destroying our own military with critical race theory, uh, all those nations on our southern border are uh, allying with Europe against us. Latins Unite Against the United States is the name of an article that Andrew has written about this uh, declining influence that the U.S. has here in our own hemisphere. Uh, you can find a link to that in our show notes for today's episode of the show, and you'll see links there to all of the other articles and other literature items that we've talked about today. That's on thetrumpet.com. Well, we are coming to the end of Trumpet Hour. You can send any questions or comments you may have about today's episode to letters at thetrumpet.com. And thanks very much to our panel, Andrew Miller, Abraham Blondeau, Mr. Richard Palmer, and Brent Noctegall. And we'll leave you today with these words from E.Y. Harburg. Words make you think a thought. Music makes you feel a feeling. A song makes you feel a thought. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world. 